The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. On May 5th, 1925, 24-year-old high school science teacher John T. Scopes entered Frank Robinson's drugstore in Dayton, Tennessee. With prohibition outlawing the sale of alcohol, the soda fountain at Robinson's served as the town's de facto watering hole. And on May 5th, it was packed with some of Dayton's most prominent citizens. Scopes nervously approached the men seated at the counter. He wasn't sure why they had summoned him there for a meeting. Frank Robinson himself, who also chaired the county school board, pulled out a stool for Scopes and motioned for the soda jerk to bring him a drink. As he lit a cigarette, Scopes noticed that everyone was looking at him rather intently. Finally, local mine operator George Rapalier casually mentioned that they had been arguing about whether it was possible to teach biology without also teaching evolution. Scopes said it probably wasn't. Although he was a general science teacher by trade, Scopes had been substituting for the biology teacher. He pulled the state-approved science textbook off a sales shelf and showed Robinson and the others the section on human evolution. He told them he had used it in his lessons. The gathered men looked at each other with enigmatic expressions. Robinson then turned to Scopes, a slight smile on his face. He informed the young science teacher that he had just admitted to breaking the law. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Welcome to the first of two episodes on the trial of John T. Scopes, who was accused in 1925 of illegally teaching human evolution to his students in Dayton, Tennessee. This week, we'll examine the socio-political climate that led to a ban on the teaching of evolution in Tennessee, why Scopes ended up on trial, and how two of the country's most famous legal figures became involved in the case. Next week, we'll detail the trial itself. Billed as the trial of the century, we'll see how the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial became a heavyweight fight that consumed America's imagination and served as a referendum on education, the First Amendment, and individual rights. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information.
On November 24, 1859, the world changed forever when Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. Although theories on evolution had existed since the early 1800s, Darwin's work was the first to offer scientific evidence to support it. Like Copernicus's discovery that the Earth revolves around the Sun, Darwin's theory of evolution forced theologians to reconcile the words of the Bible with the advent of scientific knowledge. Darwin's theory of evolution split the Protestant world into two factions, modernists and fundamentalists. Modernists generally accepted Darwinism and adjusted their interpretation of scripture to make room for the concept of evolution. For instance, modernists allowed that maybe instead of God creating the earth in six days, perhaps each day signaled a separate epoch spanning millions of years. Instead of creating all life at once, maybe God created it through the means of evolution. On the other side, conservative Christians refused to accept Darwin's theory of evolution. They contended that the idea of species evolving directly conflicted with the concept that God was perfect and had created everything in the universe deliberately. If animals evolved in order to better cope with their environments, that would have to mean that God was flawed. Furthermore, the idea that humans were created via the bloodthirsty, merciless competition of natural selection rather than from the outpouring of God's love was unacceptable. In the mid-1910s, the outbreak of World War I added more fuel to the anti-evolutionists' fire. Horrified at the war's atrocities, many conservative Christians linked the German military's aggressive actions with the concept of social Darwinism, which expanded the idea of survival of the fittest to human society. Social Darwinism was also responsible for the practice of eugenics, whose proponents argued for the advancement of the human race through the elimination of undesirable traits. From this disgust with modern society and what he felt was declining morals, a Baptist reverend named William Bell Riley founded the World's Christian Fundamentals Association, or WCFA, in 1919. Its inaugural conference attracted 6,000 attendees, including one of the most famous men in America, William Jennings Bryan. Colloquially known as the Great Commoner for his support of the average worker, Bryan was first elected to U.S. Congress in 1890 at the age of 30 and was the Democratic presidential nominee in 1896, 1900, and 1908. After abandoning his presidential aspirations, Bryan served as Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson, but resigned when he disagreed with the country's entry into World War I on moral grounds. After successfully campaigning for the enactment of women's suffrage and prohibition in the late 1910s, the deeply religious Bryan took on a new mission, fighting the teaching of evolution in schools. Supported by the quickly growing influence of the WCFA, Bryan firmly believed that the teaching of Darwinian evolution removed God from daily life. Coupled with his belief in majority rule, Bryan argued that if most people didn't want their children being morally corrupted by what he believed was the unproven theory of evolution, 
public schools should be barred from teaching it. In 1921, the 61-year-old Brian began his anti-evolution campaign in earnest when he unveiled a speech titled The Menace of Darwinism that he delivered in speaking engagements all across the country. An extremely powerful and popular orator, Brian's anti-evolution speeches quickly gained attention. Later that year, Kentucky's Baptist State Board of Missions called for the state's legislature to pass a law barring the teaching of evolution in schools. Brian quickly voiced his support for such legislation, and although it failed to pass, it was only defeated by a single vote. Brian's anti-evolution movement was quickly gaining momentum, but as the anti-evolution movement gained steam, one of Brian's former allies became one of his most vocal critics. When Brian first ran for president in 1896, one of his closest allies was a 39-year-old attorney named Clarence Darrow. Born in the small town of Kinsman, Ohio, Darrow was a staunch supporter of individual rights. He became famous in 1894 for defending employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company when they went on strike. During the 1896 presidential election, he aligned with Bryan's vision of standing up for the average worker. But after that, the two men quickly diverged. As an avowed agnostic who bordered on atheism, Darrow disapproved of Brian's fundamentalist religious views and believed he was too uneducated to lead the Democratic Party. As Brian's political career progressed, Darrow went on to become arguably the most famous defense attorney in the United States, for better or for worse. For every case he won on behalf of the so-called little guy, he helped violent criminals escape punishment. One of his most notorious cases was the 1924 Leopold Loeb trial when he helped two wealthy Chicago teenagers avoid the death penalty for violently murdering their schoolmate. But as his star ascended and he acquired fame, fortune, and a controversial reputation, Darrow's dedication to individual rights never wavered. During the early 1920s, Darrow became one of the anti-evolution movement's most vocal critics, as he felt the movement's effort to control education interfered with students' and teachers' individual rights. He repeatedly tried to engage William Jennings Bryan in debates over science and religion, but Bryan refused to engage him. Darrow went so far as to publish a list of 55 questions addressed to Bryan in the July 4, 1923 edition of the Chicago Tribune regarding the literal interpretation of the Bible and the origins of humanity. But there was no need for Bryan to respond. His side was winning. Earlier in 1923, the Florida State Legislature passed a resolution stating, quote, that it is improper and subversive to the best interest of the people to teach as true Darwinism or any other hypothesis that links man in blood relationship to any form of lower life. While Bryan lauded the Florida legislature for taking this step, the resolution was non-binding, meaning it only denounced teaching evolution and it didn't necessarily make it illegal. But at the same time, Brian didn't want there to be a penalty for teachers who taught evolution. He just wanted them to be legally barred from doing it. 
At the time, state legislative sessions were held every other year, so Bryan and his anti-evolutionist allies had to wait until 1925 to try again. But with a nearly two-year runway, they had a lot of time to make their case. Rather than casting a wide net, Bryan focused exclusively on a few states, most notably Tennessee, An anti-evolution bill had narrowly been defeated in the 1923 session, and Bryan firmly believed that with more campaigning, he could help it pass the next time around. With the help of his friends in the WCFA, Bryan hammered his message home throughout the second half of 1923 and all of 1924. And the people of Tennessee listened. On January 21, 1925, John W. Butler of the Tennessee House of Representatives introduced a bill stating, quote, that it shall be unlawful for any teacher in any of the universities, normals, and all other public schools of the state to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals. Violating the law would be classified as a misdemeanor and punishable with a $100 to $500 fine. Today, that would amount to a fine of about $1,375 to $6,850, not a small chunk of change. Six days after it was introduced, the Butler Act passed through the Tennessee House of Representatives with an overwhelming 71-5 to vote. The Butler Act then went on to the state Senate, where it had to be passed before the governor could sign it into law. After another month or so of debates, it was finally time to vote on March 13, 1925. As in the House of Representatives, the Senate approved the Butler Act with an overwhelming majority vote of 24 to 6. Eight days later, Tennessee's governor, Austin P., signed it into law. As of March 21, 1925, it was illegal for any public school employee in Tennessee to teach human evolution to his or her students. Immediately upon learning that the Butler Act had passed, leaders in the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, saw it as a threat to freedom of expression and individual liberty as guaranteed by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. In 1924, the ACLU had pledged to defend the academic freedoms of teachers, whose rights to free speech were threatened both inside and outside the classroom. The ACLU's statement specifically mentioned the growing anti-evolution movement as a concern. On May 4th, about a month and a half after the Butler Act was signed into law, the ACLU put out a release that appeared in major newspapers across Tennessee. It read, quote, We are looking for a Tennessee teacher who is willing to accept our services in testing this law in the courts. Our lawyers think a friendly test case can be arranged without costing a teacher his or her job. Distinguished counsel has volunteered their services. All we need now is a willing client. By the next day, they would have one. 
Coming up, we examine the so-called drugstore conspiracy that led to John T. Scopes going on trial for teaching evolution. And now, back to the story. After the passage of the Butler Act made it illegal for Tennessee public school instructors to teach human evolution, on March 21, 1925, the ACLU offered to pay the legal fees of any teacher who was put on trial for violating the law. The offer, printed in the May 4, 1925 edition of the Chattanooga Times, caught the attention of Dayton, Tennessee resident George Rapalier. Founded in the late 1800s, Dayton had once been the commercial and governmental hub of Ray County. But when the closure of a commercial blast furnace forced many of Dayton's residents to find work elsewhere, the city fell on hard times. By 1925, the population had diminished from a peak of 3,000 people in the late 1890s to fewer than 1,800. Much of downtown Dayton laid abandoned, and city leaders, such as Rapalier, were desperate to find a way to rejuvenate the local economy. As a member of a modernist Methodist church, Rapalier believed that evolution and Christianity could exist side by side. He firmly opposed the Butler Act, and after reading the ACLU's May 4th press release, he saw the chance to kill two birds with one stone. He could fight a law he believed was unjust, while also attracting much-needed publicity to Dayton. Newspaper in hand, Rapalier quickly hurried down to the soda fountain at Frank Robinson's general store. He knew that Robinson also wanted to bring more attention to Dayton, and both men agreed that taking the ACLU up on its offer was the perfect opportunity. But before they could go forward with their plan, they needed to make sure there were attorneys in Dayton who would be willing to even prosecute the case. Enter Dayton City attorneys and brothers, Herbert and Sue Hicks. Both Herbert and Sue, who was named after his mother, supported the moral justification behind the anti-evolution law. And while they suspected it might actually be unconstitutional, they agreed to join Rapalier's scheme. With the lawyers on board, all that was left to do was find a teacher willing to admit to teaching human evolution to his or her students. The next day, May 5, 1925, the members of what became known as the Drugstore Conspiracy summoned the 24-year-old high school football coach and part-time science teacher John T. Scopes to Robinson's Drugstore. After confirming that Scopes had indeed taught human evolution to his students while filling in for the regular biology teacher, Robinson asked if he'd be willing to take the ACLU up on its offer to pay his legal fees in exchange for testing the anti-evolution law in court. Scopes paused for a moment to consider the offer. Although he was no expert on evolution, he disapproved of the Butler Act and was eager to test its constitutionality in the courts. After some discussion, Scopes agreed to participate. Rapalier waved over a justice of the peace who just so happened to be sitting nearby. 
The justice hastily scribbled out a warrant and handed it to another conveniently placed constable, who in turn informed Scopes that he was accused of teaching evolution. In John T. Scopes, the drugstore conspirators had found the perfect defendant. He was young and had no family commitments to worry about if the case took up the whole summer. In terms of his beliefs, he believed in evolution, but wasn't so passionate about it that he'd come off as radical to neutral parties. With a boyish face framed by horn-rimmed glasses, he even had the look of a well-meaning young teacher. The question now was, who would represent him in court? It turned out that Scopes didn't have much of a choice. Before the ACLU could even begin arranging who would represent him, an eccentric law professor named John Randolph Neal drove to Dayton and introduced himself to Scopes. According to Scopes' recollection of the meeting, Neal told him, Boy, I'm interested in your case, and whether you want me or not, I'm going to be here. Scopes agreed, with a grand jury hearing scheduled for May 25th to determine if Scopes should be indicted. He didn't have much time to find another lawyer, and plus, Neal seemed as good as anyone. A former law school dean at the University of Tennessee, he had been ousted due to his fervent belief in evolution, and his equally fervent disdain for religious fundamentalists. Although the higher-ups at the ACLU would have preferred to send a lawyer of their own choosing, they figured that if Neil had to be replaced, it wouldn't be hard to do. In the wake of Scope's arrest, the Associated Press picked up on the story. They dubbed it the Scope's Monkey Trial because of the evolutionary connection between humans and apes. As the case grabbed headlines all across the country, it attracted the attention of the anti-evolution movement's most prominent figure, William Jennings Bryan. Bryan and his allies in the WCFA realized that the Scopes trial was the perfect opportunity to attract attention to their cause. As luck would have it, the WCFA was holding a meeting in Tennessee in early May of 1925, and Bryan was the featured speaker. With the future of anti-evolution laws at stake, the WCFA asked Bryan on May 13, 1925, to appear on its behalf at the Scopes trial. In turn, once Sue Hicks learned that Bryan was considering going to Dayton, he asked him to formally join the prosecution. Even though it had been over 30 years since Bryan had actually practiced law, he agreed. In his mind, the case went far beyond the narrow scope the ACLU had envisioned in terms of testing the Butler Act's constitutionality. In Bryan's opinion, the question of evolution itself was on trial, as was the debate over majority rule versus individual liberty. With Bryan officially in the fray, it was only a matter of time until the case caught the attention of his nemesis, Clarence Darrow. Upon hearing that Bryan would be part of the prosecution in the Scopes trial, Darrow recruited his friend and fellow Bryan nemesis, Dudley Field Malone, a prominent New York-based divorce lawyer, to join him in Scopes' defense. They sent a publicly released telegram to Scopes' current lawyer, John Randolph Neal, announcing that they were willing to join his legal team. 
Neil immediately accepted their offer without consulting with the ACLU. Worried that Darrow's fervent agnosticism would alarm many of their liberal religious supporters, the ACLU didn't want him anywhere near the Scopes case. Darrow and Malone were summoned to the ACLU's offices in New York in an attempt to convince them to leave the defense team, but the men refused. Although the ACLU was paying the legal fees, the ultimate decision of who was on the defense team rested with Scopes. And for the moment, he was happy to have the country's most famous defense attorney represent him. But in the lead up to the May 25th grand jury hearing, Neil and Darrow quickly began to clash with respect to their intended approach to the trial. Each had come to Scope's defense for highly personal reasons. Neil saw it as a chance to get payback for what he viewed as his illegal dismissal from the University of Tennessee. As he put it, the question is not whether evolution is true or untrue, but if it involves the freedom of teaching, or more importantly, the freedom of learning. On the other hand, Darrow saw the case as the culmination of his lifelong fight against religious beliefs interfering with individual rights. He believed it was his chance to take down William Jennings Bryan and his anti-evolution fundamentalist allies and prevent them from seizing control of American life. But as lead counsel, Neil had the ultimate say on how Scope's legal team would approach the defense. The night before the grand jury hearing, he told the press, the fight will continue along the lines I have outlined, namely, the lack of power upon the part of the legislature to limit the inquiry of the truth in our high schools and universities. Seemingly throwing Darrow a bone, Neil added, as I have stated most emphatically, this is not a question of the truth or falsity of the Darwin theory. We think it advisable that the judge and jury should be enlightened in regard to the theory of evolution. On behalf of the prosecution, Brian claimed he would avoid getting into the science versus religion fight that Darrow was hoping to drag him into. And yet, during a pretrial speech on May 19th, he framed the upcoming trial as, quote, a battle royale between the Christian people of Tennessee and the so-called scientists. However, the focus wasn't necessarily on the merits of evolution. It was on who had the right to control public education in Tennessee. As Brian saw it, Whoever was in the majority had the final say, and in Tennessee, the majority was the conservative Christians. They had elected the state representatives, who in turn had passed the Butler Act. He argued that if they didn't want evolution taught in their schools, then it shouldn't be. However, Bryan wasn't the lead prosecutor on the case. That distinction fell to the district's attorney general, Tom Stewart. It was ultimately his choice how the prosecution would approach the case. Up until that point, both sides had been presenting their arguments in the court of public opinion. They finally got the chance to face off head-to-head -head for the first time at the grand jury hearing on May 25th. The grand jury would determine if Scopes should be formally put on trial for illegally teaching evolution. Much to the disappointment of the gathered press, 
The grand jury hearing didn't feature the hotly anticipated showdown between Brian and Darrow. With Judge John T. Ralston presiding over the proceedings, the hearing was a relatively quiet affair. All Tom Stewart had to do to move the case to trial was to show that there was evidence that Scopes had taught human evolution to his students. The ideological fireworks could wait for later. Stewart's arguments lasted less than an hour. He introduced the science textbook Scopes had used into evidence, read the section on human evolution, and called three of Scopes' students to the witness stand to confirm that he had taught them about it. With Scopes not contesting that he had taught human evolution, the process was cut and dried until it wasn't. A few reporters had questioned the three students before the hearing started. Although they testified that Scopes had taught them about human evolution, their understanding of the subject seemed tenuous at best. Even though Scopes had tried to coach them in their answers, the most the students could remember about his lessons on human evolution was that he talked about Tarzan of the apes. As the students fumbled their answers, a new question arose in reporters' minds. Did Scopes even violate the Butler Act in the first place? But Judge Ralston seemed intent on moving forward with the trial in the face of the rather flimsy evidence against Scopes. He essentially instructed the grand jury to vote in favor of indicting Scopes. With the defendant himself hoping to go on trial, the grand jury saw no reason not to grant him his wish. The trial was scheduled to begin in earnest on July 10, 1925. Both sides would have six weeks to prepare their arguments. But if the ACLU had its way, the eagerly awaited showdown between Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan might never come to fruition. Coming up, both sides make their final preparations for the Scopes trial. But before going to court, Clarence Darrow has to fight for his place on the defense team. And now, back to the story. On May 25, 1925, a grand jury officially indicted 24-year-old science teacher John T. Scopes for violating the Butler Act and teaching human evolution to his students. The trial was slated to begin on July 10th of that year, but with Clarence Darrow and Dudley Malone representing Scopes, the ACLU was worried that the case would become less about the Butler Act's constitutionality and more about Darrow's personal crusade against organized religion. Having failed to remove Darrow and Malone from the defense team prior to the grand jury hearing, the ACLU summoned Scopes and his lawyers to New York in early June under the auspices of conducting a strategy meeting for the trial. In reality, the ACLU's top officials hoped to convince Scopes to replace Darrow and Malone with lawyers of their choosing. In a series of closed-door meetings, ACLU executives tried to convince Scopes that Darrow was too radical, that he only cared about his own reputation, and he was more concerned with headlines than with actually winning the case. But they weren't the only ones with Scopes' ear. Malone also had the chance to lobby Scopes on his and Darrow's behalf. 
In the end, Scopes elected to stick with Darrow and Malone, even though he was a willing participant in George Rapalier's drugstore conspiracy, Scopes was still facing criminal charges. He wanted the best criminal defense lawyers he could find. On June 8th, ACLU Associate Director Forrest Bailey announced that Darrow would act as lead counsel for the defense, along with Dudley Malone, John Neal, ACLU Representative Arthur Hayes, and a local Dayton attorney named Frank McElwee. But the ACLU officials weren't done with their backroom maneuvering. Although they resigned themselves to having Clarence Darrow lead the defense, they were hoping to prevent Malone from going down to Dayton. As a divorced Irish Catholic city slicker, they feared Malone's presence would offend the sensibilities of the conservative, agrarian Dayton residents, who would inevitably make up the jury. The ACLU suggested that Malone should stay behind in New York to look up legal references for the case. Malone refused in no uncertain terms. In a scathing public statement, he wrote, I will not be the GOAT. I am accustomed to letting my clerks look up references for me. In contrast to the defense team's infighting, the prosecution seemed to be firing on all cylinders. Tom Stewart was lead prosecutor, with Herbert and Sue Hicks, Wallace Haggard, J. Gordon McKenzie, and his father, Ben McKenzie, assisting him on the legal side. Although he had a law license, William Jennings Bryan hadn't actually practiced law in over 30 years. He knew he was there to lend his name and oratorical skills. While Stewart and the other lawyers wrangled over the legal minutiae, Bryan and his son William Jr. were in charge of locating the expert witnesses who would bolster the prosecution's argument in the inevitable debate between science and religion. In early June, Bryan solicited the services of George McCready Price, a self-taught geologist who believed that the Earth had been created in six days and was only 6,000 years old. Although Price's theories weren't given any legitimacy outside of fundamentalist circles, Bryan hoped he could provide a convincing argument against evolution. Unfortunately, Price was lecturing in Europe and would be unable to attend the trial. Perhaps fearing his theories wouldn't stand up against members of the scientific establishment, Price wrote to Bryan that the trial wasn't, quote, a time to argue about the scientific or unscientific character of evolution theory, but to show its essentially anti-Christian implications and tendencies. Despite Bryan's best efforts, none of the potential expert witnesses he contacted agreed to participate on the prosecution's behalf. The only one who expressed any willingness to come to Dayton was one of the founders of Johns Hopkins University, who hedged his belief in the literal interpretation of the Bible with the concession that perhaps non-human species had undergone the process of evolution. Not wanting to muddy his message, Brian gently declined his services. As the prosecution quietly struggled with recruiting expert witnesses, Darrow and his defense team made near-daily announcements during the six-week build-up to the July 10th trial regarding the experts they were soliciting and their overall strategy in approaching the case. 
regardless of whether or not the potential experts actually agreed to join, by linking scopes to some of the most prominent scientists of the time, Darrow was able to add legitimacy to his defense, while also keeping the prosecution off balance. Unlike the tight-lipped prosecutors, Darrow encouraged his team to speak freely about the significance of the upcoming trial, Although the Tennessee legislature had acted in accordance with the wishes of its constituents when the Butler Act was passed, many Tennesseans nevertheless disagreed with the anti-evolution law. In a pre-trial visit to Knoxville, Tennessee on June 28, 1925, Dudley Malone told a Knoxville women's group that, quote, no more serious invasion of the sacred principle of liberty than the recent act against the teaching of evolution in Tennessee has ever been attempted. On June 30th, John Neal, though he had been moved to the back seat of the trial, cast a similarly ominous message during a speech in Chicago. Quote, if the state's charges against scopes are sustained, you will see other evolution trials and perhaps a movement in Congress to control the thought as well as the actions of the people. Darrow himself went on an expansive speaking tour in the month before the trial, concluding with a visit to Dayton and Knoxville in late June. Those expecting to see a slick city lawyer in an expensive suit were taken by surprise when Darrow got off the train wearing a straw hat and a casual summer coat. He spoke to his audience with a casual, unpretentious air, seeming more like a country lawyer than the most successful defense attorney in the United States. Speaking to a public audience at John Neal's Law School in Knoxville, Darrow passionately defended individual rights against what he perceived was the oppression of majority rule. Quote, It seems that every organization has some law it is endorsing to force upon the people. It is best to leave everyone free to work out things for himself. Nature is doing it in a big, broad way and doing it pretty successfully. Although the prosecution was staying quiet about their overall strategy for the trial, William Jennings Bryan traveled all across the eastern United States throughout May and June, advancing the anti-evolutionist cause. On June 1, 1925, he promised a Chicago audience that victory in the Scopes trial would be, quote, the beginning of the end of attacks upon the Bible by those teachers in the public schools who have been substituting the guesses of scientists for the word of God. Before the trial had even begun, both sides had successfully framed it as one of the most significant cases in American history. Both Darrow and Bryan realized the importance of taking their arguments to the court of public opinion. For each man, the stakes went beyond the case itself. As Brian put it during one of his speeches in Brooklyn, quote, We must win if the world is to be saved. With all eyes on Dayton, the small town prepared for the carnival-like atmosphere that the Scopes monkey trial was sure to create. Anticipating the possibility of up to 30,000 people coming to see the trial, the Southern Railway added extra service to Dayton. 
the Tennessee state government sent a mobile chlorination unit to make sure there was enough clean drinking water for everyone, and a sanitary engineer who would make sure the town's sewage system didn't become overburdened. Hotels put extra cots wherever they could, and the local coal company opened a tourist camp on some of its vacant land. A nearby pasture also had the honor of becoming the county's first airstrip. In preparation for the festivities, a massive speaking platform was erected on the courthouse lawn, and six blocks of the town's main street were designated as a pedestrian mall. Drugstore owner Frank Robinson wasted no time making sure everyone knew his soda counter was where the trial had originated, hanging a banner proudly announcing his store was where it started. Other vendors also got in on the fun, decorating their stores with pictures of monkeys and apes in accordance with the focus on human evolution. Robinson's drugstore offered a simian soda, and the town constable's motorcycle even carried a sign that read, Monkeyville Police. Rapalier and Robinson's mission to use the Butler Act to bring publicity to Dayton had been more successful than they could have ever imagined. But in doing so, they had ignited a national debate that went far beyond whether or not John T. Scopes had taught human evolution to his students. With Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan at the helm, the Scopes monkey trial had become a wrestling match over American morals, politics, and education. Each side had taken their arguments to the court of public opinion, but now it was time to take them to a court of law. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday for the heavyweight clash between Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan as they argue for their respective visions of America's future, not to mention the fate of John T. Scopes. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself what takes precedence the will of the majority, or the rights of an individual? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Alex Benedon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>